right, you guys, episode 60. 60, 60, guys, with Krista Scott Dixon is about to start, and this is the second time she's on my show. And again, this episode was better than the first one. She is just plain brilliant. We get deep. I wanted her to use me as a case study because I've been dealing with binge eating issues and I just let her get right into it. You'll see how she asks such great questions for me to really think about why I have binge behavior and I don't want to spoil anything but it's this episode is just awesome and I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. So let's just get right into it. Here's Krista. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, you guys, for another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the lovely Krista Scott-Dixon. Say hello. Hey there. Uh, So to break the ice for the audience, I always ask my guests now, what do you got planned for the weekend? What do I have planned for the weekend? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, I've been starting to do long distance bike rides. Um, I don't have a road bike or anything. I actually have a mountain bike, which in Toronto you really need because if you've ever seen the roads in Toronto, you're like, yeah, that's mountain bike territory. But yeah, I've been starting to do um, long distance cycles, just taking a Sunday and going as far as I feel like going. And then I finish, this is ritualistic, with barbecue. I have to find a barbecue restaurant at the end of this route and crush some brisket. So that's what I'm planning for this weekend. That's awesome. I used to cycle quite a bit and like me, friends or clients will always have to go out to like a coffee shop or some sort of restaurant just to like get our calories back in us because after we, we would go up towards like 100 kilometers. So you're like, you know, six hours deep of just cycling and you're like, yeah, I want a burger real bad. Oh, yeah, totally. Well, once you pass that threshold of a multi-hour cycle, um, the carbs seem extremely attractive at the end. <laughs> yeah, which is great because now like the next question I actually want to get into, we were kind of chatting back and forth on Facebook is this whole binge behavior and binge eating And I've been actually kind of talking about this for the last couple episodes on my show. And I think you'd be awesome to kind of tackle this because you're like a guru when it comes to this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, just to start off, maybe tell the audience what the difference between binge eating disorder is and binge behavior. Uh, You know, that's a great question. And there's obviously kind of a continuum, right? Like binge eating disorder is a clinically defined phenomenon. Um, And, you know, so anything clinically defined tends to be the more serious end of the spectrum, right? So anyone who's presenting at like a disordered eating clinic is pretty deep into it. So, um, so, so, you know, binging behavior is kind of like partially along the continuum, but basically there's a couple different ways to think about it. One, one is what they call objective binges, which is like you, um, eat more than anyone would objectively consider sane, like three pizzas and 10 bags of cookies and whatever. Right. So you eat an amount of food that is reasonably considered extremely excessive. And then you can have a subjective binge, which is like you maybe eat a normal amount of food or maybe even a small meal or a few grapes or something, but the feeling is of having lost control. And so what defines binge eating really is this feeling of losing control, this feeling of like, I am eating and I can't stop. And it's something that I feel 
compelled to do. And, um, and, you know, if it moves into the clinical end of things, I would say what defines a clinical phenomenon is it's really significantly disrupting your life and your health and your relationships and kind of like everything that's going on for you. Whereas you can have binge behavior, just like you could be like a, you know, a problem drinker and still be pretty functional in most of your life. So, but, but the feeling of being compelled and of losing control, that's really the big factor, regardless of what you eat or how much you eat, I would say. Where do you think like binge behavior kind of stems from? Like, is there a common theme from the people you've seen and coached over the years or is there different situations that kind of leads to that behavior? Um, I mean, the common theme underlying it is that it's a form of self-medication. Well, actually, no, that's not. Let me divide it into two. One is a form of self-medication, right? It's an extremely effective emotional painkiller <laughs> for a brief period of time. The second main reason is the body is aggressively trying to get itself back into energy balance. And those two things can go together, right? So you can be someone who has a history of chronic dieting um, and there's all these emotional associations with food. And so when you binge, it's both uh, like a physiological experience as well as an emotional experience. Then often you see things like uh, athletes who cut weight for competition end up binge eating. And sometimes that has less of an emotional component to it and more of a physiological component to it. So there is kind of crossover, but I would say that those are the two um, main commonalities. And so what underlies either of those physiologically, generally, there tends to have been some kind of pattern of energy restriction. In plain English, that means you've probably gone on a diet or you've probably tried to restrict food intake or, um, a kind of nutrient, typically carb intake. So we often see carb binges in people that are going low carb. So generally what comes before a binge is restriction for the most part. Um, and then also for people for whom there's that emotional component, what precedes the binge earlier in someone's history is trauma, right? And then what precipitates a binge is usually stress or anxiety or discomfort or distress or some kind of emotional state that someone just doesn't want to experience. And a lot of the time, they're not even really aware of it. They're not having that conscious thought process of, oh, I feel bad. I want to eat and feel better. A lot of the time, it's just the compulsion. You know, they're like, I got to get out of here and crush this bag of cookies. Like that's the feeling. So, um, you know, I don't want to say it's inevitable that nutrient restriction leads to binge eating, but if you talk to people, um, typically there was some kind of diet or I don't know, fasting or, or restriction of some kind before the very first binge. Uh, I think you said it right, like right off the bat, it was like, if any time somebody puts themselves into restriction, it just like recipe for disaster. Cause Hey, training clients over the years, at least I would say 99.9% .9 of them all tried some sort of diet that made them feel like complete shit and then want to like devour everything in sight. Yeah. And I remember chatting with one woman that came into our gym that was seeing our Cairo and she did the Bernstein diet, I think five times and I was oh, like yeah. I was like so how, how 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 did it work out for you she's like well obviously not very well I'm still fat I'm like oh straight to the point and I'm like that's like one of the worst examples to 
like restrict yourself completely because I think they put you on like an 800 calorie diet and then you get shot up with IVs to make sure you're still functioning as a human. And of course, after that, you want to eat everything in front of you. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's worth mentioning for people listening, people who have binge issues tend to feel like it's a failure of willpower, but underlying the physiological binge uh, experience is there are evolutionary mechanisms that are designed for preventing starvation and they're way stronger than you. Like, and I mean like your conscious you, um, they are designed to keep you alive. So at some point they will overwhelm the strongest will, the strongest motivation, the best plan, whatever you do, unless you're like locked in solitary confinement or something like that. But the research is pretty clear that we have these, uh, what are called homeostatic mechanisms. So, so physiological mechanisms that are designed to keep things kind of on an even keel, they will kick in. And so a week of dieting will earn you a weekend binge, right? Like it's just as simple as that. And, or, I mean, whatever the time scale is, uh, again, with fighters, you see this a lot, like they're cutting weight, cutting weight, cutting weight, often for several weeks, fight happens, they go out and just crush buffets for days. Like I've seen fighters gain up to 30, 40 pounds after a fight. Like you just have to, if you imagine the massive amount of energy intake that has to happen, no, not all of it is fat, some of it's water, but still like the amount of eating that has to occur. And the other thing about binging too, is you often engage in weird behavior. Like uh, one of the fighters said to me, I don't know what's happening. I'm driving around in my car at like three in the morning looking for cashews. I just have to find somewhere that sells giant bags of cashews. Like just you, so you often get like weird attachments to particular foods, or you just find yourself doing strange, almost like ritualized behaviors. Uh, so that's sometimes part of it too. You, you often have perhaps a particular physical path, like you go to a particular place or you do it in a certain place, or there's like a certain sequence. Um, I talked to a bodybuilder once who would do this thing on her refeed day where she would have like a stick of butter and a bowl of brown sugar and like a scoop of peanut butter. And she would do this like circuit around her kitchen from counter to counter to counter and like dip the butter in the sugar and then like gnaw at it and then scoop the peanut butter and eat it. And this would continue for, I don't know, however long it would take you to eat a jar of peanut butter. Like it's just, you know, so you get into these kind of weird, bizarre, almost ritualistic behaviors. Um, and it's all part of the phenomenon. Man, I cannot imagine doing something like that. Like, that's that's a lot of cal. I don't even think that's like a refeed date. I think that's like a, that's a full on binge day. Well, exactly, right? Like, that's why I don't really like the whole bodybuilding and figure competition shows. Like, I used to train a couple women training for them, and it's never ended in a good way. Like, typical scenarios: woman sees other women doing it in the gym they're like oh I can do that too because then my body's gonna look better and then they get through the whole process and I remember I can't remember if I told it told this story on this show but I had one woman she was like four weeks out from her show and we started our session and then she just started crying I'm like what what's wrong she's like my calves are not defined enough I'm like are you serious like like there's so many like mental and psychological things that happen when you're trying to diet that hard. And almost all of the women that I've trained doing these shows, they almost like just disappear from the gym for, uh, for like at least a month. And you find out they just been eating everything in sight and they've gained like 20 pounds and they need to do their next show to get back on track. And I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> 
Yeah. And you've put your finger on something really important too, which is the sort of cyclical nature of it, right? And so people engage in the dysfunctional behavior and by which I mean the dieting and the prepping and all that kind of stuff. And then of course their body is like, hell no, <laughs> you're dying right now. You need to get some calories in you or, you know, you're, you have zero hormones, you're infertile. I'm dropping your estrogen and your progesterone and all that. Um, and then of course they, they go off the rails and, but then they think, oh, to to fix this, I need another diet. I need another plan. I need more rules, which is actually what precipitated the problem in the first place, right? So it's like, this is one of the rare cases where people are seeking the problem as the solution, right? So they <laughs> drive themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into dysfunction. And you're right. I don't know a single person who has competed with any kind of, um, you know, long-term way. Like if you've done multiple competitions and that sort of thing, I don't know anyone who's come out of that process sane, healthy, normal. And if they are, it took a lot of work to get back there, right? There's probably a handful. There's always that 1%, right? That doesn't end up crazy. But, um, but if they are, it takes a lot of mental and emotional work to get back there especially for women. And I think you've called that out really well, that you know, women's bodies defend uh, energy balance extremely aggressively because, you know, ev again, evolution is a thing <laughs> and evolution, regardless of our actual life plans, wants women to yeah, potentially be fertile enough to make babies. And evolution doesn't care about your plans. It doesn't care about your defined calves. It doesn't care about your abs. It wants you to have a certain level of body fat and energy intake so that potentially if you are in your reproductive years, you could make a baby. And that's, you know, that's, that's how physiology thinks. It's, it's not always in line with what we want as kind of conscious humans. Yeah, you're right. And like, what's interesting, I was listening to another podcast with Arnold Schwarzenegger on it, and they were talking about his whole thing into the bodybuilding world and he said he really early on he figured out that everybody who was competing had some sort of insecurity about their body and he would use that to his advantage to get other people to actually work a little bit harder so he would go to his like buddies and be like hey did you notice that your quads are kind of small and then they like right away look down at their quads and then Arnold said like the next day he would go back to the gym and all they're doing is quad exercises to build up their legs. <laughs> and he said that that was a major like breaking point in his like head. It was like everybody who's doing shows are just really, really insecure about their bodies and they'll do everything that it takes to make themselves look better. And hopefully that's going to make them feel better. But it's usually not the case. Well, that's the thing, right? And I think, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know the degree to which this exists in men, but certainly with women, the role of early life trauma or even current trauma is huge. And this is a piece that people often don't acknowledge, right? Like what drives someone towards extreme control of their body or, or any, you know, any of these behaviors that we're talking about and like this previous trauma or existing trauma or psychological distress is really the originator of all of this stuff. I mean, sometimes people stumble into this by accident, right? Again, you're competing in wrestling and you think, oh, I'll cut a few pounds. And, you know, so there, there are those cases that there's no origin other than restriction. But for a lot of people, you know, these roots go really, really deep. And so, again, this is why the food and eating and workout stuff isn't even going to fix it because the original injury, the original wound is so much deeper than that. 
So, so how would you work with an individual like that? Like, how would you figure out their root cause? Like, what is your kind of process if you had someone with a history of like binge eating and some other like restrictive diets? Like, how would you get to the core of what you need to work on with that? Well, the first place I like to start is actually just bringing awareness to it and, and saying, Hey, uh, you know what? Um, next time you have a binge episode or an eating episode that you don't feel good about, talk yourself through it. Like take some notes. Uh, if you have your smartphone nearby, dictate into it. Any, any way that you want to record this is up to you, but somehow start to make your process evident to yourself because a lot of times what defines a binge is that it's automatic and you kind of go on autopilot and you check out, like your brain just goes somewhere. And so the first step is just to gain awareness of actually what is even happening here? What am I doing? What am I thinking as this whole thing unfolds? What am I feeling? And then afterwards to maybe work backwards and say, okay, like what was happening half an hour before this started, an hour earlier in the day, whatever. And so bringing awareness to your habits and your patterns and your thoughts and your feelings in those moments is a huge, I think, eye-opening step for a lot of people. And then the second thing is seeing if you can slow it down. Because a binge depends on speed, right? Like you got to just get that stuff in there as quickly as possible. So can we slow the process down? Can we even, even by 30 seconds, like, can you take a breath before you put the next bite in? Can we just slow the process to see if we can get the conscious brain online a little bit? By the time you go through those two steps, it starts to become apparent to people that it's not just about the food and the eating. And I'll say that to them straight up. I'll say, listen, it, it, by now it's probably becoming clear to you that it's not about the food. It's not just about the eating. It's not just about the diet. There are other things at work. And I don't want to presume, you know, to the, like we, we can figure out how much we want to go there within my scope of practice and what you're comfortable talking about. But it's important that you understand that it's not just about the food and the eating and, and the body stuff. And I think for clients, once they can get to that place and make that shift, that's really helpful because that, that opens up other avenues because then the solution is not another diet. It's not another exercise plan. The solution is something else, which may be frightening, right? A client may think, oh God, I totally don't want to deal with this. Right? I don't want to go there. Please let's, you know, give me another diet. I'd rather not even consider this. But I think most clients become open to the idea that there is something deeper, that emotions and thoughts and feelings and physical sensations are connected, that there's a story, right? There's a, there's a coherent narrative. This isn't just a random thing. Um, and that there might be additional support required. So as much as possible, I try to get people going in the direction of counseling. Now, I'm qualified to offer that, but I don't. I don't consider it part of my scope of practice for nutrition clients. Um, so, but I can authoritatively say, you know, here is the kind of person I suggest that you work with, and here is the language that you might use to describe the problem. So, um, eventually, ideally, you you kind of frame it as like, I wonder if you could bring an additional field of expertise or an additional person into your support network to help you with this. Because I can help you with the physiological piece. I can help you, for example, get more protein to help you make all the chemicals you need to make. And I can help you adjust your carb intake so you're not restricting and, and your body isn't feeling like it's you know not getting the energy it needs. So we can there are things that we can do nutritionally, balance your fat, you know, essential fats, that sort of thing. 
but I'd like you to add someone else to your support network. And again, most clients are pretty receptive to it once it dawns on them that it isn't just a failure of willpower or them being screwed up and crazy. You said a lot of great things there, and I think what would be kind of cool is if we used myself as a case study. Yeah, let's do it. um, I think, honestly, since I got into this industry, I've always had some sort of, like, binge behavior and i like the last couple of weeks i've been like really thinking about it like where it stemmed from so my whole story kind of started back in high school i used to be overweight i was like over 200 pounds and one weekend i decided that i was going to read every single article on men's health and whatever website i could find about weight loss and i was like okay i'm gonna make this like stick i'm gonna do it and then over the summer of grade 10 and going into grade 11 dropped 60 pounds i was like super lean, super skinny. And when I came back to school, everyone was like, oh, who's the new kid? Like no one even recognized me. That was how big the change was. And I like thought thinking about it back then, like I don't think I ever allowed myself to have any junk food whatsoever. Like the most restrictive diet you could ever think of. Like I still ate a lot of food, like meat, veggies and everything, but not like a drop of alcohol, not a drop of, you know, chocolate or whatever it may be. And then Going into the industry, I kind of like started learning about nutrition and I was like, oh, what are these cheat days you speak of? Right. And I started getting (laughs) into that where, you know, Monday to Friday, super clean Saturday, just go for it. And my cheat day would be like on average, say, I will eat a whole large pizza to myself down six beers for my first meal. And then, I don't know, dinner would be like a whole lasagna to myself and like some like half a cheesecake, right? And I just like thought that was normal. And I was like, all right, I'll go to eat clean all week and then I'm going to do this on Saturdays. And it, it like became a ritual. I always looked forward to it. But then I realized like when Monday rolled around, I'm like, I can't wait until Saturday. I can't mm-hmm. wait. I can't wait. And then you were like miserable, like leading up to the week and you're like looking. For, it was almost like a need, like I had to have it. And recently, what I've been trying to do is almost like cut it up into little pieces where if, you know, it's Tuesday and I feel like having a burger for dinner, I'll have it. A couple days go by and I'm like, you know what? I want a couple cookies. I'll have some because I kind of figured out that it's not so much that I need to have so much of it is just a little bit. So I don't know if I'm on the right track or whatever kind of popped up in your head. Let's see where this goes. Yeah, I have I have lots of questions, so Perfect. we may not get to them all. But <laughs> like one of the things that strikes me right away that I'm curious about, if I go back to high school, why were you 200 pounds? Like what was the series of events that brought you there? Um, so I'm an immigrant. So I came to Canada from Poland at three And I think the introduction of like McDonald's and junk food was the prime like issue. So I remember back in high school, like if I wanted to have breakfast, it would easily be like a liter of Coke and a bag of chips because it was quick and easy. And I just kind of fell into that whole idea. Like I still remember like dinners, I would always have a glass of Coke no matter what. Uh And it was like always in the house. I was like, whatever, I'm just going to do it. So that's, I think that's why, like I always had junk food available and it was easy to grab. I didn't have to wait for my mom to cook. So if dinner was, you know, running late, I was like, whatever, I'm just going to eat a bag of chips or like a whole box of granola bars. It's all good. 
Yeah, yeah, that that makes total sense, and 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 so that it sounds like that was significantly different than what you were used to, and I'm I'm also kind of curious about like even that transition process of coming to Canada at age three, like you probably don't even remember, but I mean, can you, do you have any recollection of what it used to be like? Was, was food different there or the headspace different? Well, from what I like remember from my mom and grandmother telling me what Poland was, it's like everything was, you know, homemade. There was no like processed foods whatsoever. So you're like, our diet would consistently be of like potatoes, some sort of chicken or meat and lots of veggies constantly. And I mm-hmm. remember growing up hating eating that because the option of junk food was available. So I'd mm-hmm. always pick that and I would like almost manipulate my mother in order to get what I want. And then eventually she would cave in. And I guess I learned that, you know, if I be a little difficult for long enough, I can get what I want. So I guess that just over time, she just kind of gave in, gave in, gave in. And then I kept growing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've you've actually drawn out two key factors already in this brief anecdote, which is, first of all, you were exposed to a food environment that disrupts our normal physiological regulation, right? Um, so, not, not not the Eastern Europeans are famed for their svelte figures. Like yeah. my, half my family is Ukrainian, so uh, I, I know this to be true. But but basically, you went from a diet that in some way would make it somewhat easier to regulate yourself physiologically so that your normal appetite and hunger and fullness mechanisms could do their job to an environment where, you know, with processed foods, it's extremely hard to regulate yourself physiologically, right? And and kids should have fairly good appetite regulation systems. So the fact that this began fairly early on is interesting. Um, and the other piece of it is that you had a family behavior pattern around food that somehow enabled this, right? Somehow made it possible and enabled it. And I mean, we could dig deeper and find out what messages were in your family about food and eating and so forth. But right there, you have basically a physiological stimulus and a behavioral stimulus. So this is the antecedent, right? Um, so then, okay, what, what made you decide to drop 60 pounds? Um, I would say when I got into high school, girls became a very important thing in my life. Mm-hmm. And constantly being turned down and not being noticed by them at all when all my friends were like, you know, the typical like skinny and athletic, played really high level sports. So all the girls just kind of flocked to them. So I always had it in the back of my head, like, you know, eventually I'll I'll get fit. Eventually I'll do it. And one time I was like, OK, this is enough. I need to get serious about it. Mm-hmm. And what was it like to, like, before you lost the weight, to sort of move through the teenage social space as a 200-pound kid? Like, what did that feel like? Oh, it was horrible. I was, like, depressed. Uh, music was, like, my best friend. I would listen to a lot of rap and, like, punk rock to get through the days. But uh, I don't know, that was, that was my, like, outlet is just music to keep me going. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, here we have a couple more factors that are like part of the puzzle, right? We have social norms that reward having a certain kind of body or looking a certain kind of way. Uh, and we have a lot of pressure on that front, too. It's not just like that there's a norm, but there's like active pressure uh, on that front that, that if you don't look a certain way, there's active rejection. Like you feel like it's outright explicit rejection. Um, and then there's a sort of underlying piece of how do you feel moving through the world in a body that is not socially acceptable, right? Like you feel depressed, you feel ashamed, you feel like, ugh, 
I, I don't want to be in this container. So now we're up to four factors. <laughs> and again, I'm sure there's more. Yeah. Um, uh, so, okay, so we go on the restrictive diet. Uh, it's And, you know, you strike me as someone who um, thinks about things in very systematic ways. So it strikes me that a restrictive diet would sort of speak to you mentally. Like it's, There was something about this diet that appealed to you. Am I correct? Um, well, I can't remember the exact article, but, like, I think the gist of it was eating six meals a day instead of, like, three big ones was the way to go. So I looked up, uh, I can't remember what it was called. They gave like a list of foods that you should be eating and there was nothing like bad about it other than just no junk food, right? Like Mm -hmm. I, I cut out junk food. Like it was like a flip of a switch. Like I decided the night before and the next day I just stopped like completely. So I ate nothing but vegetables, fruit, lean protein, like brown rice and like yams for carbs, but like six small meals throughout the day, like between two to 300 calories. And then on top of that, what I did is during summer and I was playing football. So we had a summer camp where you'd work out in the weight room three days and then do like skills and different stuff on the field for another three days. So I like worked out six days a week. And I still remember on my day off, I would still work out at home doing mm-hmm. like body weight exercises. So I was just like, I, I was on a mission and I had to do it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really familiar story for a lot of people because like, what you're describing is, on the one hand, a situation that can be incredibly productive and beneficial, right? Like, young kid gets into healthy eating and working out, transforms his body at a perfect moment like of puberty when all the hormones are aligning. Like, it's just the, the ideal moment for building muscle and dropping fat and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, a lot of these situations start perfectly fine. Like someone wants to get in shape or just eat healthier or fit into their pants a little bit better. Um, and so the initial, um, attempts to do that, the initial diet or workout, whatever, may be completely innocuous. Like maybe that was actually, um, not necessarily a bad thing, but what tends to happen is almost like the roller coaster starts to crest the hill, right? So it's going up the hill, go through and it crests and, and you, and you pass a certain point where you're getting rewarded for this and so you don't stop, right? It doesn't, so you, so you get to a certain point and you're like, man, this is, I'm getting so rewarded for this from whatever direction it's coming. Let's see how far I can go. So if I'm working out three days a week, what about four? What about five? What about six? What about two a days? If I'm losing 40 pounds, what about 50? What about 60? What about a hundred, right? Like how far can I push this? Because I'm getting approval for what I'm doing and it feels really good, right? I lost some weight. I'm feeling good. People are approving. Cool. What if I kept going? And that's sort of the shift that happens. And I don't know if that resonates with your story, but the level of exercise makes me curious. So I don't know. You tell me. Um, I would say like, I got to a point where like, I got pretty lean, but I was always trying to get leaner and trying to get the so-called like six pack to a point where it's like super shredded, like cover model, like six pack and not just, you know, flat abs. And you can see the first two and you're probably, I was probably like 10% body fat or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. I've always wanted more for some reason. Mm-hmm. And like, even today I'm like, yeah, it's stupid that I want it. But in the back of my head, I still kind of want it. If that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And, and tell me when you say you've always wanted more, like, like what will happen if you get all of that? 
See, like, <laughs> I knew this question would come up because I asked myself, I'm like, okay, well, if I get the six-pack, how does my life change? Nothing really other than, like, a cool photo, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I got a photo of a six-pack, and that doesn't really do anything, right? But the want is still there, even though I know it's not going to change that much for me. Mm-hmm. And let me ask the question a different way. What, um, what pain would you avoid by getting that? Um, I don't know. Like sometimes, cause I think about it this way. Like I want that six pack, but it's almost like how I was thinking when I was back in high school. Mm. And even though I've changed my life, like I'm in the industry, I'm helping other people, you know, lose weight and keep it off. But sometimes the voice of me back in high school when I was overweight is still telling me that I need it, even though there's days where I'm like, I actually don't. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's so strange to me, but yeah, that's what kind of what's going in my head. Mm-hmm. So you're hearing that that pre grade ten voice or whatever that would be, <laughs> yeah. right? That teenage voice. Um, and like, can you describe like the like can you, if you could put words to that voice, like what what would it be saying? I honestly think it's like if I had a six pack, I could get any girl I I want. Because Mm -hmm. I I remember one specific conversation where I was at, like, I think it was the dance or something like that. And I had one girl I went up to, asked her to dance, and she's like, I would never dance with you because you're fat. I'm like, damn Mm -hmm. it, right? Like, that was kind of, like, I think my tipping point. And I think that was around the time when I was like, okay, F this. I'm going to get serious about weight loss. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... I'm, I'm I'm kind of glad you told that story because one of the questions I was thinking about was um, why did someone just turn on a dime, right? What makes someone suddenly decide to do something? And often it is something just like that where we have that moment and someone's like, I don't want to date you because you're fat. And you're like, Ugh. Yeah. like it just, it kind of just crumples your soul a little bit. Right. And that sticks with you. And I, and I kind of have this theory, totally unscientifically, that our lives are almost like this tree. And as we grow older, the branches grow and, and become more complex. But if something significant and painful happens to us at a certain point, that branch kind of stops growing. And so we might go on with our lives and be totally functional adults and pay our bills and stuff. But when a situation comes up that evokes that old situation we go right back to that age in our minds that we were that, you know, when that domain of, of life occurred. So you may be a completely grown up person in all the ways that matter, except for that one piece, that one piece is still kind of living in that other time. It's almost like a jet lag thing. And so when you talk to people about behaviors, one of the questions I like to ask or get them to think about is, how old are you right now? Like in this moment, how old are you? And probably I'm guessing in you telling the story, you're almost reliving that moment, right? Like mm-hmm. you probably part of you yeah. is just like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the brain, the teenage brain that is driving the grown up you in this moment. Yeah, I can see that. Cause like, honestly, there's some times where during the day, I will act just like I am in high school. And the funny thing about that is, like, um, I married my high school sweetheart. And 
we still act the same since the first day we started dating. We're like <laughs> complete kids. And if the world saw how we act, they would be like, there's something wrong with you guys. <laughs> but it's been like that for like, we've been together eight years. Like nothing's changed. Like we're still the same kids from high school. And there are times where we're like, you know, normal adults, like how the world is supposed to see you. But when we're together, it's like, we're still those kids from high school which is interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so part of you still living there. And, and it sounds like not in a bad way necessarily, right? There's, yeah. there's that piece of you that is a teenager that is also uh, a teenager in all the best ways, right? Fun and silly and stupid and laugh at fart jokes and stupid movies <laughs> yeah. and whatever, right? So it sounds like that part of yourself is actually kind of a, a good part. It's just not completely integrated with who you want to be right now. Yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now you're engaging in puzzling behavior, right? You're like, why am I even doing this? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to you. It feels weird, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess something else I'm curious about is, um, like, what what feels kind of good about the whole, like, clean eating during the week and then cheat day on the weekend? Like, what feels kind of good about that? Um, I would say the fact that I'm eating super clean during the week is the fact that it's bringing me to possibly more muscle, possibly mm-hmm. more strength. I feel good when I'm eating clean because I feel like, you know, I'm not dragged down. Because, like, even if I do, like, a one-day binge and sometimes it, translate, it translates into, like, oh, I'll have one more meal on Sunday. And you can almost feel the junk food, like, weighing you down. You're not <laughs> functioning properly. And you're like, oh, my God, this was not worth it. But having that cheat day is like I don't know what it is it's like if I had to choose anything it would always be pizza or some sort of like carb with bread and I mm-hmm. can, it just tastes amazing I don't know what it is like I could if I could live off just bread and cheese that would be it <laughs> so during during the week is any bread or cheese permitted um well, like recently, the la- maybe say the last month, I've been trying to sprinkle small things like that that um, makes me, I would say almost like carries me over for the next couple days. And I've been kind of experimenting with, you know, what maybe a trigger food is and what a buffer food is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing that I've been doing now is after dinner, I'll have like a whole bowl of like strawberries because one, they just... They fill me up pretty quick and they're pretty sweet. So I don't feel like I need to eat chocolate or anything like that. Or if the days where I feel like I need a chocolate, I have like Easter eggs frozen in my freezer (laughs) and I'll grab like one or two and I'll have them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm satisfied. I don't really need anything. So I've been trying to experiment with that where I like, you know, sprinkle the small like treats for myself. So on Saturday, I don't feel like yeah, let's go to Olive Garden and just crush like three like baskets of breadsticks. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you imagine a binge day, like, do you wake up on Saturday morning going, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah do seriously. this. Like, what's like, take me through the, the thoughts and the feelings that you have throughout that day. Um, so like, I haven't done a big binge like that before. And I think another thing I should add was that I was following a book um, that I bought from another coach and in there, there was like one giant cheat day where you can just like go for it. 
and then after do a 24 hour fast. So I don't think that actually helped because knowing that I had a 24 hour fast, I had to like really make my cheat day count. Mm-hmm. So thinking back then, that was maybe like last year when I did this, um, I would wake up and I would like, actually during the week, whatever craving I had, I would write it down and that would be my shopping list. So that mm. that, that was what how I started it. So whatever I crave during the week, write it down. And I'm like, okay, Saturday morning, I'm going to go here, here and here. And I'm going to be good for the day. And I remember, like I said earlier, like full pizza, like a large one to myself, a bunch of beers for like one meal. Dinner could be like a whole rack of ribs and a whole cheesecake and maybe some more beer. And if I could fit in a snack in between where I physically can't like put anything else in my mouth um, I was like good to go <laughs> so that was kind of like my whole process <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and okay so so it strikes me that a lot of the thoughts you had on that day were kind of revolving around relief from deprivation right because you yeah. sort of not just physically deprived yourself or like in terms of food but also mentally deprived yourself like clamped it down and controlled it and and then of course you know the, the post the post cheat fast is always like a classic way to try to get yourself back into control. Right. But it really does augment this mindset of like, okay, here we go back into sucky old deprivation. So there's almost like there's, there's a, there's a food deprivation and then there's like a mental deprivation, like an emotional deprivation where the story that you're telling yourself around what's even happening here is really significant like because if okay let's let's imagine you had some kind of disease right some kind of um i don't know like yeah some kind of disease where from from now until eternity ended you could never eat bread and cheese right like you would just get tumors that fell off your head and (laughs) you ate bread and cheese like you would feel kind of bad about bread and cheese but you wouldn't be like my life sucks because I can't have bread and cheese. You'd be like, well, you know, this is kind of what I need to do. Or if you had a child in the house that was horribly anaphylactically allergic to bread and cheese, if you didn't eat it, you'd be like, well, I'm doing this for little Jimmy. It's going to keep him safe. Like your story around what you'd be doing would be different, right? And you might feel differently about it and have a different experience of it. But right now the story is one of deprivation, right? Like I'm not getting this stuff. And so when I get it, I need to really make it count. Yeah. Right. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And the other piece that strikes me is, um, a big part of binge eating is the planning. The planning (laughs) is so good. The anticipating and what am I going to eat and where am I going to get it? And in what order will I get it? Will I go to this place first and that place first? And what will I wash it down with? And so, that is also part of the binge story, right? The anticipation. Because after a certain point, eating it is no longer fun, right? My guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, please do. By the end of Saturday, you're like, it's a little mechanical, right? You're just like, let's get this down. Come on, we got a job to do. But you're not enjoying it as much as you did maybe with the first few bites. Is that, is that your experience? You tell me. Um, I would, yeah, I would say like by the end of the day when I'm like just scarfing down food just because I need to, knowing that I won't be able to do it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's like an enjoyment thing. I think it would probably be good enough if I just had my first meal that I was planning on for the day. Whereas like, yeah, later in the day, it's like, yeah, I guess I'll have another slice of cheesecake. 
let's just get this done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, a, a key point I think is so interesting is that there are two different brain systems governing reward seeking behavior or anticipation and actually enjoying things. And so they can operate sort of independently. And one of the hallmarks of addictive behaviors is that you persist in the activity, even if it actively causes you pain. So when I was at my height of binge eating, like I would go to bed and just have the worst stomach ache. Like I can't even imagine what stretch damage I was doing to my insides. (laughs) Right. Um, and I would feel so bad, like just physically so bad. And yet I would do this over and over and over again to the point where I was writing notes to myself, dear future Krista (laughs) or dear past Krista in an hour from now, you're going to feel terrible. So don't do this. But we persist in the behavior despite negative consequences, right? I mean, that's the hallmark of addiction. We feel compelled to do something that eventually we stop enjoying. And the reason is because you have these two different brain systems. And so the brain system that is reward seeking and anticipation generating and planning is the brain that is in control for the most part during the whole binging process. So the pleasure brain, the brain that actually likes stuff, temporarily shows up at the beginning. It's like, ooh, this first bite is really yummy. Hey, thanks. But then it just goes offline. And so it's just stimulus, 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 reward, reward, reward. So I always thought that was sort of interesting, that difference between wanting something and liking something. So I don't know how that lands for you to, to hear that, that, you know, you persist in something despite not actually enjoying it. Um, well, like the one thing I noticed that now that I've been trying to break up my cheats throughout the week, when the weekend comes and it's Saturday, I don't have the need to be like, oh, I can't wait to get this. I can't mm-hmm. wait to buy, I don't know, a whole bowl of pasta and just down it. Like that need for it is kind of gone so I hope I'm kind of on the right track to like keeping this under control, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Well, let me ask you, uh, what does normal eating look like to you? Like, how would you, how would you say a normal eating person eats? Like a person with no food issues, like how would they eat? Um, I would almost look at it like. You know, they're eating their fruits and veggies and lean protein. And if they're like, you know what, I'm going to have a piece of cake. They have it. They don't have any kind of second thought. They don't go, oh, no, I shouldn't have it because I'm trying to eat healthy. Or, you know what, I'll just wait until later and see if I'm hungry then. Like, it's just like you want a piece of cake, you'll have a piece of cake. And then the next day, they're okay. And then maybe on a Wednesday or Thursday, their friends ask them to go out for dinner. They don't have any second thought like, oh, that restaurant's not going to you know, fit into my macros or anything like that. They're just like, yeah, I'll come out. I think that's what comes to mind when it comes to like, you know, good eating. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe the emotional state of that normal eating person? Like what do they, how, how do they feel about their eating? Um, I would say that they have full control. That's what kind of comes to mind right off the bat. Like, you just have control over food and food doesn't have control over you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if we imagine that person, that perfectly sane, uncomplicated, normal eating person as like a 10, like the, the ideal, let's call them. And the most screwed up person we can imagine who's eating like broken glass or something like that as a, <laughs> as a one, how, how close would you say that you are to that normal eating person now in the last month compared to where you were? Um, I would say I'm pretty close, like, 
this past weekend wasn't the best, but I'm not like, oh my God, like I really need to fix my diet. I'm like stressing about it. I just like took a second to like reflect on it. And I was like, you know what? I could have done better. I didn't have to go out again to eat somewhere for dinner. Like I could have just gone home because I have all my meals prepped and cooked. I can just could have done that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I would say I'm pretty close to that, you know, ideal person. But again, I'm not perfect. So Right. So would you be like a seven or an eight along that continuum? Yeah, I would say like seven, seven and a half, maybe. So that's pretty good. All things considered, right? And so and and where would you say that you were at your worst on that continuum? Um maybe like a three or four, because it got pretty bad. (laughs) Like I I, like I I, like went for it. Like I had nothing holding me back. And then my like wife was just like, you're just crazy. And I'm like, leave me alone. Let me just do this. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know my life. You yes, don't understand. Like, yeah. 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 I had the same response, by the way, when people were trying to fix me, I was like, you don't know, man, <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm hardcore. <laughs> so you've gone from a three or a four on this continuum to now being more like a 7.5. That's pretty impressive, actually. Well, like. I, like because I'm in this industry and I read a bunch of stuff, I already know what the tools are. Maybe not mm-hmm. the best ones, but like they've been in front of me. And I'm a type of person where if I read something and I want to accomplish a goal, I'm like, okay, what do I need to do to do it? Let's go do it. Like anytime it comes to anything in life, like I had uh, one of my guests last week, he was asking me if I ever do, you know, single uh, podcast episodes. And I'm like, no, I just interview somebody. And he's like, well, it'd probably be a better idea if you did one single one and one with someone that you interview, because then you can kind of showcase you being a coach and you actually make probably generate more business that way. And I'm like, oh, it's a really good idea. I'll start next week. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not like a whole like, oh, it's a good idea. You know, maybe I'll like write it down and maybe like a year from now I'll actually do it. But I've always been a type of person where if someone's like, you know, this is a good idea, or if I go to a conference and I pick up two things, I'll actually start doing them right away, not just like, oh, that's cool. (laughs) So I don't know, like, I've really been trying to get it better. So like yesterday, for example, like I ate really clean and I was like, you know what? I want a beer. So I just had a beer and it felt good. And there you go. I'm like not stressing about it. I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm going to gain like two pounds if I step on a scale. <laughs> like I just don't care about it as much anymore, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so what was that like to kind of play in that sandbox of like, no, I had a beer, whatever. And it was good. I wrote a blog, like <laughs> it gave me some more motivation. Like I felt more relaxed almost right. and at ease that I had control over the situation where I know if I had like another beer and started getting like a buzz going, then that would just be like a downhill spiral into like, oh, those chips on the counter look pretty good. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. And, you know, something you're bringing up, I think is really important for people listening is the difference between internal control and external control. Right. So external control is me giving you a rule and saying, you know, you can only have one beer. Right? That's external control rules and, and plans and stuff that's kind of outside of you. Whereas I think what you're getting at is more of an internal compass, right, an internal guidance system that starts to sense into like, okay, what are the, where are my guardrails here, right? What are the edges of the road for me, the path that I want to be on? 
And sometimes I'll be straight down the road and other times I'll be closer to the guardrails, but the guardrails inside me are always there and I can trust myself to make good decisions and wise decisions for myself. So it sounds like what you're describing in terms of this ideal of control and with the normal eater is someone who's guided from within, right? Because a normal eater, I think we could probably agree, doesn't follow rules. They don't have rules by definition, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you're getting at something that's really key to to bring out. But I also want to highlight something that's happening here is that you are now using your strengths in the service of this project of becoming more sane. And what I mean by that is your first diet, you turned on a dime. You're like, God damn it. I'm reading everything I can and I'm coming up with a plan and I'm doing it. And you did it. So that's clearly a strength, right? And then the strength is now being used in the service of this current project of of becoming more sane around food. So I feel like for people listening, what I would want them to take away is to ask themselves, what are my strengths? What are my superpowers? And sometimes your superpowers are embedded in what you think are your dysfunctions, right? Like if you're a highly organized person, maybe you organize your dysfunctional behavior in some way. Maybe you track your food and all this kind of stuff. But there's a nugget of strength in there that can also be used for the power of good. And what really resonates for me in your story is, first of all, the fact that you pulled yourself out of what sounded like a very deep hole. So kudos to you. And Thanks. you know, to folks listening, it's really important to celebrate the fact that you notice the down parts, but forget the up parts, right? You forget about the times that you tried to do things in a better way or a wiser way. Um, but it's really important to call those out. And so the place that you're at now where you can even have this conversation represents so much psychological, emotional, mental, even physical work on your part. And I, I think that's really crucial to call out. And you're using your superpowers. You decided on something, you read about it, you learned about it, you got some tools, and you chose to execute so, in, in a sense, the thing that got you into the hole is getting you out of the hole as well, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, I think so, too. Like, before having this conversation, I was like, I really hope I'm not really screwed up. And then, like, Chris is going to tell me, yeah, you should probably go see somebody. <laughs> <Right>? like, <laughs> I was just, like, like, stressing about it a little bit. I'm like, I really hope I'm doing okay. <laughs> no, and I think that's important to call out with clients who are struggling or if you're someone who's listening. Like... <laughs> Focus on the resilience and the resourcefulness here, because in the beginning, too, what you were doing is an attempt to solve a problem, right? I'm getting rejected. I feel crappy about myself. I'm going to solve this problem. And you solve the friggin' problem, right? Like you attacked the problem and you attempted to solve it and you kicked its ass. Uh, and, And that's so crucial to call it. And through this entire process, really, you've demonstrated tremendous resilience because you've always been trying to do the right thing, right? Even if you got off on the wrong route, um, the underlying motivation is, I want to do the right thing here. Uh, For me, that's just so crucial to call out and and sort of look at this as a process and an ongoing unfolding process too, right? It's, you're not done yet. You're making progress. You're going somewhere. So, okay, let me just ask you this one, thought experiment. So, you're about a 7.5. what would it look like to move along the sanity continuum to an eight? Um, I would say maybe like, cause this past year was probably the first year I traveled the most in my entire life. 
I had two trips away. I went to Mexico and in Jamaica, and holy crap, I did not know I could drink so much alcohol. Like, <laughs> I was like, I had a game with myself. I was like, I need to make this like worth my time. So I calculated, you know, per drink, it would be, you know, eight or nine bucks. So I would average at least, I think it was like 10 per day. And I made it a game to make sure I got 10 drinks per day. I love how you made it a game. That's what's <laughs> yeah. most awesome about that story to me. Yeah. So I was like, you know, 10 drinks. I was like, oh, that's perfect. But I'm like, at the same time, that's a lot of calories. And like, depending on what it was, like rum and Coke was like a go-to. And to like really up the ante, I would drink doubles to a certain point. <laughs> and then I was like, how, oh. How are you not face down in the pool by the end of all this? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I have high tolerance for it, but... Um, I don't, I don't, I actually don't know. Like, that's a good question. But then like, you know, you have like the buffet and restaurants to choose from. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's go for it. Right. And I think to get to an eight or 8.5 to be able to go on vacation and not feel like you're obligated or you have this need to like really put yourself to the max and see how far your body can go for eating and consuming alcohol. Right. Okay. So that's really interesting. So what you're talking about is like the contextual difference, right? The different situations would give you different levels of ability to cope. And so one of the things we do with clients is we make them um, come up with what we call a risk hierarchy, right? So which situations feel most risky or least risky or more sane or least sane? And for me, like one of the most challenging situations was family gatherings because my family loves to eat and it's kind of stressful because everyone's arguing or like whatever. So it's like, it's all the things together at once. Um, and, and, and tons of food (laughs) and we just, you know, as soon as you get in the door, there's food in your face. So for me, that was that kind of situation. Um, whereas the least risky situation for me was, Oh, I'm working at home and I have my routine and I have healthy food in the fridge and whatever. So one of the things that's worth thinking about is, where am I at my best and where do I struggle the most? And how can I bring those lessons of where I'm best into the situations where I struggle a little bit more, you know? So, Oh, okay. Um, I noticed that when I'm eating alone, I can follow my inner compass a little bit better. I can feel my hunger signals. Okay. Could I work on feeling hunger signals when I eat with someone else? If I eat socially, could I, could I make that a project? Right? So taking what's working in the least risky situations and moving them into the more risky situations is another great way to move along the continuum. So I really like the way that you've described this project because I think that's it's pretty cool. And, I, and I'm also wondering, like, what would be an intermediate step? Like, what would be, okay, so, like, the, the all-inclusive resort is, like, the 8.5 or maybe even a 9. Like, what's the 8, the 8.1, right? Would it be, like, a vacation, but you have an Airbnb, so, you're like, you're making all your own food? Like, you can kind of plot this course along the continuum, right, and ask yourself, okay, where am I at right now and where would I like to go? And what would that look like? Um, and let me ask you another question though. Sure. So, okay. So you're at 7.5. What would drop you down to a, like, why aren't you a six? Um, I would say that, uh, like, even though I know, you know, binging on Saturday is not the best choice. It's almost like if I don't think about it and, you know, Monday passes by, I ate super clean Tuesday passes by, um, I ate super clean and then Wednesday I'm like, Oh shit. Like I haven't had like a cheat or like a small treat. Like I should probably do it. 
So I almost have to like pay attention to my days and make sure I have something small. So then my weekend is set up. So if I'm not Mm. paying attention, you know, I might be like, oh shit, it's Saturday. I I guess I should probably eat a, a bunch of junk food. Right. So I almost like have in the back of my head, like, all right, Monday, do I feel like I need something? No. Tuesday rolls around. Actually, you know what? I can probably have something small and then I have it. Like if I don't think about it, then it probably would set me up for failure. You've just said something so crucial and amazing, which is this idea of, well, there's two pieces, checking in, like having a a, a pattern of checking in with yourself, whether that's mm-hmm. daily or multiple times a day and paying attention, like just paying attention and asking like, what's happening right now? How am I feeling? What's the vibe? What's going on here? Like asking yeah. your body, what, what, is, what is happening right now? I'm making a point of checking in with you. What's going on? And I think you have just put your finger on the solution, to be totally honest. Oh, awesome. Perfect. I got there without knowing. <laughs> well, you kind of did. And you're further ahead than you realize. That's awesome. And like the other thing that I noticed about having these small like little treats throughout the week it actually works better for my marriage because a couple <laughs> of weeks ago I was like, I picked up my wife from work and I'm like, let's go out for dinner. She's like, it's Thursday. I'm like, I know, let's do it. And she got like all excited that we're going for dinner on a Thursday Aww. instead of like it was a Saturday. Right. So it, it works both, both ways. Well, and I think that's really important to call out because any, any kind of significant chronic problem that we have in our lives doesn't just affect us unless we live on a desert island, right? Or in solitary confinement. <laughs> but like, but in general, like, you know, we are embedded in a web of relationships and when we are affected, somehow it affects the people around us too. It certainly affected my relationship with my husband when I was deep in my eating stuff. Um, whether that was, uh, you know, I was uh, thinking about other things. Like we would, I remember very clearly, um, we went to a Sedona a couple, few years in a row. I remember the first year we went, we went on this beautiful hike. And if you've ever been to Sedona, Arizona, it's just like this magical place with beautiful red mesas and stuff, just amazing scenery and great hiking. And I remember being on this hike surrounded by like the most majestic of nature's creations and thinking about food and what I was going to eat and all that kind of crap. Right. And then I remember going back a few years later and doing that same hike and, and crossing a certain landmark and thinking, Oh my God, three years ago when I was here, I was thinking about this. And now I'm just thinking about being here. And that's an amazing thing. And I can be present with my husband and present with this experience that I'm having. So uh, it, it's. You, I think you've just nailed something so key, which is that it's not just about you and it's not just about your own private um, thing that you're going through. Working to get better at this and working to be more sane has wonderful effects elsewhere. You can enjoy your life. You can enjoy people around you. You can have relationships. Like You can do fun stuff. I mean, think about how much cool stuff you could do if you weren't thinking about food and eating and body stuff or planning your meals or all that kind of, you know, you could just, I don't know, learn Cantonese or I don't know what the hell you could do, but it could be a, a lot of other very cool things, even if that was just having more fun in your life. Man, this was so awesome. Like, you, you're so smart with this stuff, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's important for people to understand they're not crazy. They're not alone. They're not broken. Your body is responding very normally to the stimulus that it's getting. But also, 
you can pull yourself out of it. You know, you're never screwed. It's never too late. Even if you've been a, um, a disordered eater for years and years and years, I have clients in their 50s and 60s who are changing and growing and, and changing habits that have been with them for decades. So it's completely, completely possible for sure. Yeah, that was pure gold again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe last question, because we're already at a full hour. Um, do you have any projects coming up? Any like news or exciting stuff that's going to be happening with your career? Well, I've been doing a bunch of speaking gigs, which is fun. I always like traveling and, uh, and meeting people and especially in the fitness industry, I've been doing a lot of speaking to trainers and coaches. And so it's really nice to just go out and meet them and, and hear what's on their minds and, and just see the way that the industry is evolving because I think it is going in a really nice direction in a lot of ways. So for example, I've been doing, um, training sessions at Equinox and to just, and I've been doing it on behavior change and to see a major fitness change, being curious about behavior change and wanting to train their trainers on, on those kinds of concepts is really great. It shows that the industry is maturing and, and, you know, can be a career for people where you work towards mastery and growth in your profession. So that's, that's kind of nice to see. And I've got a few books on the go and I've got a book on resilience uh, with Craig Weller from Barefoot Fitness. And I've got a book on uh, counseling methods and coaching tentatively titled steal this coaching. Because <laughs> um, there's a lot of cool stuff from counseling that you can steal and, and use in coaching, whether that's just a good question or, or a cool concept. And so those are the two big ones on the, on the board and just finished this book on genetic testing for precision nutrition and so uh, we'll be bringing that one out I think sometime in September that'll be an ebook and it's huge it's a, I think if it were in print it would be about 300 pages oh, but it's all that we know about genetic testing and what genetic testing can tell you about you know can it really tell you about your health and fitness and nutrition like to what degree and I mean I'll give you a little bit of spoiler which is to say that it, genetics is complicated <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have thought so, but actually it kind of is. Uh, and so, you know, the science is really cool and interesting and we can see a lot, but uh, it's more complex than I think a lot of people give it credit for. It's not like I can find one gene and be like, oh, hey, cool, you should never eat bananas. Like, it's, it's not <laughs> like that. And I wish it was, but biology is super complicated. So that's that's what's on the board right now. And uh, yeah, just having a lot of fun traveling around and and meeting folks and I'll be down in, um, in Long Beach at the perform better summit in a couple of weeks and doing an episode of the fit cast with my good buddy, Kevin Larrabee, who's always a fun time and uh, Jill Coleman. So yeah, lots of things on the board. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This is just plain amazing. Well, what you have to do is you have to get in touch with me in like two weeks or so to let <laughs> yeah. me know what's shifted for you mentally because something will digest in your brain after this conversation. Oh, for sure it will. So that's going to wrap up episode 60 with Krista Scott Dixon. Hopefully you enjoyed that one because honestly, I think hands down, this might've been the best episode so far to show you how in depth coaching can actually get. And if you at all have, you know, binge tendencies or use food to fill like an emotional need, don't feel like you can't talk to anybody about it. Feel free to email me, message me through Facebook or Instagram, because this is something that I'm going through and I'm trying to beat as well. 
and you can too. So if at all you feel like food is controlling you and you're not controlling food, reach out. Don't feel embarrassed. Don't feel whatever. Like I'm a coach. I'm a coach that helps other people and I'm still not perfect. So if you feel that, you know, eating is a tough thing for you, don't feel bad. Reach out, talk, and I'm more than happy to help. And again, thank you all of you for supporting the show. It's been 60 episodes and I can't wait to do another 60 more, another 600 more. It's just going to be awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Until next week, you guys.